This morning, Dr. Smith came and preached from Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. It's great to have Dr. Robert Smith with us again this evening. Would you help me welcome to the pulpit again, Dr. Robert Smith. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God be praised. It's Sunday night, but I have a Sunday morning feeling. God is present. God is in this place. And unlike Jacob, we know it. I'm so grateful for the God-centered, God-honored singing that we have heard all day today. Songs that have a trajectory that moves from earth to heaven. Not songs of possibility thinking or positive thinking, but songs that are directed to the heart of God. And that's what worship is all about, is it not? It really means that God is an audience of one, that all of us are up here. And God sits in the audience in one chair. The choir, the orchestra, they don't play and sing for us. They play and sing with us. God is an audience of one. Everything we do here is done to glorify and lift him up. And we sit on the stage vicariously, if you will, and we worship God in an audience of one. I'm really happy to... um, where is, where's Pastor Davey? I want to look at him. All right, that's my friend. I've, uh, I've heard a lot of, about you. I want to applaud your vision and what God has done through you and Sister Marsha, your children. It's a marvelous thing when you see a man uh, who believes that if the Word of God doesn't do it, it can't be done. Just no trends, no getting on the bandwagon of what's happening now. Now, just let the word do it. And so I'm grateful for that kind of modeling. There are not a lot of you around, Pastor Davy. And thank you for standing on the word, for loving your people in 25 years. Look what God has done. And I want to say this to you eyes have not seen, ears have not heard. And neither has it entered into the hearts of people the great things that God hath in store for those who love him because the Spirit has revealed it to us through his word. And I'm just grateful for what God is doing in this place. I really feel like I have been here many, many years. I told him, and I mean this, um, I'm blessed to be in different pulpits most of the time, throughout the year, different pulpit every, time, every, every Sunday. That's not bragging. That's just how God has just mapped my uh, trip ticket. But um, you can always tell when the congregation uh, is on a five-course meal uh, with appetizers and dessert. People come here with their best china and their flatware and their stemware. Look at this crowd sitting up here uh, with all of their... Uh, uh, the, the, the plates and everything else. They're ready to eat. They're ready to eat because that's what they're used to getting from Pastor Davy. 
which makes it really hard for someone to come behind you and preach. They expect steak. They don't want Vienna sausage. They do. They want that. So thank you for being the proclaimer that you are. Thank you, Brother Gary and Sister Cheryl, for um, uh, letting me um, be a part of your family continually. Wanda and I love you. My wife is here tonight and was here for the 11 o'clock service. Now, this is Brother Gary's watch. It's a good watch. It's 625. All right, so let me get on with what the Lord will have uh, me to say tonight. Psalm 42 and 43. Psalm 42 and 43. Once again, I want to talk about the oasis of God. The oasis of God. I personally believe that there is power in reading the Word. If I drop dead after the word has been read, the word still can interpret itself without my voice. So let me read it. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? My tears have been my food day and night while people say to me continually, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calleth unto deep at the sound of your cataracts. All your waves and your billows have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I walk about mournfully because the enemy oppresses me? As with a deadly wound in my body, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From those who are deceitful and unjust, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you cast me off? Why must I walk about mournfully because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the harp. Oh God, my God, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. Once again, thanks be to Augustine, whose work is still extant after 15 centuries, in his classic work, Confessions. Thou hast made us for thyself, and our souls are restless until they rest in thee. 
God has made each of us with a God-sized hole in us that can only be filled by God. And therefore, I posit tonight, I argue tonight, I contend tonight that God is our oasis. He is the only one who can satisfy our soul. Like the woman at the well, I was seeking for things that could not satisfy. But then I heard the master speaking, draw from the well that never will run dry. Fill my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup. Fill it up and make me whole. God is our oasis. He's our subterranean stream that enables us to remain spiritually green and lush in climates that are arid and in places that are desert-like. He is our oasis. I said to you during the first three services that this psalmist, whether it was a wandering Levite, I think Hezekiah, certainly not David, is experiencing despondency. And I gave you six reasons. I said to you, I think that this psalmist is despondent and depressed because, number one, of the absence of the temple of God. Psalm 43, verse number three. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me to your holy hill, to the place of your dwelling. Second of all, I said that this psalmist is depressed because of not just the absence of the temple of God, but the absence of the God of the temple. Where is your God? Psalm 42, verse 3. Where is your God? Psalm 42, verse 10. And Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants after the water brook, so pants my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Here is the absence of the God of the temple. When shall I come and appear before God? I third, third, third of all, I told you that I thought that the psalmist is despondent and depressed because he's having a moment of melancholy. He remembers in Psalm 42 and 4 how he used to lead the processions in Jerusalem during the three mandatory feasts, the feast of the Passover, the feast of Pentecost, and the feast of Booths. He led them with loud shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude keeping praise, but now he's in a foreign land and they are not celebrating the feast. I said, number four, that the psalmist is despondent because he feels that God is to be blamed for his predicament. And he says in Psalm 42, verse number seven, all deep calls on the deep at the sound of your waterfalls, your waterfalls that are being dumped on me and your billows and your waves, obviously of trials and tribulations that are covering me up, feels that God is to be blamed for God is sovereign and there's nothing on earth he can't prevent. And if he does not prevent it, if he permits it, then it must be something that he is trying to promote in terms of his own purpose. Fifth of all, I said that the psalmist felt perhaps that he uh, is right in being depressed and despondent, justified because he senses that God is having a moment of amnesia. Psalm 42 and 9, oh God, you are my rock. Why have you forgotten me? And in Psalm 43, verse number 10, oh God, you're my refuge. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you cast me off? Why have you rejected me? 
And the sixth reason I gave for the possible uh, depression of this psalmist was that the psalmist feels as if God has not vindicated him yet. Psalm 43 and 1. Oh God, vindicate me and plead my cause against an ungodly and deceitful people. Deliver me. God, vindicate me. Make things right. You know, six reasons. And of course, as I said and alluded in the last service, that we are too spiritual to say these kind of things to God. We wouldn't say that to God uh, because we're too sanctified. We don't think that way. Everything that happens in our lives, you know, they're just all right with us. And yet, God is faithful. He is not fragile. He can take it. Some of the greatest saints and sages of all the ages have said to God what was first in their mind and then in their heart. And God takes and uh, intercepts our thoughts afar off. Psalm 139, verse number two. He abducts the thought. He kidnaps the thought. Before you even get the thought, he kidnaps it, interprets it, and then you and I express how we feel. Listen, God is faithful. He is not fragile. And because you and I have a relationship with God, we can tell God what's on our mind. And God will give us the first word. But he always reserves for himself the last word. So always remember, though God lets you speak first like he did Job, God will say, let me have four chapters. I've given you about 35 off and on. Let me give you four. All I need to do is ask one question and you're going to fail the test. Where were you, Job, when I made the foundation of the world? And when you've got a relationship with somebody, they can take it. Now, Gary, where are you? And Cheryl, where, where are y'all? Cheryl, all right, Gary, Gary's around here somewhere. There's Gary. Now, Gary, you know that I love Cheryl, don't you? I mean, you know I really love her. But you love Cheryl, don't you? How many years have you been married? 35. 35 years. Gary and Cheryl have history. 36. <laughs> and he said that with such certainty. 35. They've got history. There's certain things that I could say to Cheryl that she wouldn't take because we don't have that kind of relationship. But Gary could say those same things to Cheryl and she could take it because they have a relationship. When you've got a relationship with God, you can tell God what's already on your mind and he will do corrective surgery on your thoughts and straighten you and I out so that we stand in a place where we say to God, I repent of what I've said like Job did in Job 42 in sackcloth and ashes. And you know what God says in Job 42 verse 7 and following? My servant Job. Still calls him my servant in spite of all of this belly aching and complaining and saying, I wish that I could curse the day I was born. God says, you're still my servant. You know why? Because God is not fragile. He's faithful. He can take it. Well, this psalmist, I think, emerges out of this depressed state. And I gave you one reason. By talking to himself. He participates in a soliloquy and not a colloquy. In other words, he's talking to himself. Psalm 42, verse 5, verse 11, 
And 43, verse 5, why you cast down, O my soul, and why you disquieted within me. There's no other voice that's heard in this passage. And I said these two psalms represent one one psalm, except the voice of the psalmist. He talks to himself. I've got to learn to talk to myself, to talk myself out of nonsense into clarity, to talk myself out of complaining into celebration. I've got to talk myself out of mundaneness to majesty in terms of worshiping God who is majestic. That's the first thing. I said that this morning. But I think another way that he emerges out of the depressed state is that he has hope. Listen to what he says in Psalm 42, verse 5, Psalm 42, verse 11, and Psalm 43, verse 5. Hope thou in God. He has hope. And hope is putting on the spectacles and seeing things that are not as if they were so that they will be. Seeing things that are not as if they are so that in the future they will be. Do you hear the Hebrew writer reminding us in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1? Now faith is the substance of things, help me, hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Those who have hope in God, and I'm not talking about this capricious, whimsical thing, I hope, this weak thing. I'm talking about hope that is an anchor. I'm talking about hope that really is certain and sure and steadfast. The only thing that keeps it from being now is the not yet. And therefore, I look at life. That's what God wants me to do. He look, wants me to look at life, subspecia eternitatis, under the very light of eternity. Not the now, but the way it's going to be. I want to remind Christians, if we ever find out that Satan has already defeated, we're going to be dangerous. Greater is he that's in me than he that is in the world. He's already defeated. Martin Luther said that Satan is a serpent. And it is true that his head is cut off, but his tail still wiggles. It's true. And though we are under the blanket of justification, we stick our feet out sometimes and we get bit and nipped at. But Satan has already been defeated. We're already more than conquerors through him who already loves us. You ought to have, and I ought to have, a sense of hope. I live in the already, but I live as if it's the not yet. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. You can't trust relationships. There could be a rift. You can't trust your physicality. It could break down. You can't trust money. You know what's happening even today. You can't trust stocks and bonds. But I have a bank. It's not Fifth Third. It's not Bank America. It's not that at all. I've got a bank that doesn't know anything about recessions. It can't experience bankruptcy. In fact, I've got treasures that already hid in glory where moth don't uh, uh, take and corrupt and thieves can't break in and steal. I've got solid hope. And you better make sure that your hope takes and anchors 
the solid rock. This psalmist not only, I think, emerges out of depression because he participates in a soliloquy, a self-conversation, and because he has hope, but because he encourages himself. For I shall yet praise him, my Savior and my God, 42.5. For I shall yet praise him, my Savior and my God, 42.11. For I shall yet praise him, my Savior and my God, 43.5. He encourages himself. It's the word of David in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, when they're getting ready to stone him. The Bible says, the chronicler, the one who wrote uh, 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel 30 and 6, that David encouraged himself. And I've got to come to the place where I encourage myself. Pastor Davies can't be with me 24-7. And as much as I love this orchestra and this choir, they can't sing to me 24-7. You can't always get hold of a CD or DV sermon or tape. You've got to come to the place where you encourage your own self and tell yourself that God is still able. Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 30, verse number five. Weeping may endure for night, but joy comes in the M-O-R-N-I-N-G, morning. Verse number 11, he turns my morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, into dancing. And the only difference between morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, and M-O-R-N-I-N-G is the letter U. U. And what God wants to do is to turn your M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G into M-O-R-N-I-N-G. So much so that even though you are going through the night of M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, you can still experience M-O-R-N-I-N-G. You can have morning in the morning. And God doesn't have to change anything except change Robert Smith. And understand, I'm a blessed person. I could have been dead sleeping in my grave. God has extended my life. God has given me a wonderful wife, children, grandchildren. God is allowing me to see his work throughout the various parts of the world. God has saved my soul. God has made me whole. God has justified me. I'm going through sanctification. One of these days, I'm going to be glorified. If that's not enough for me to just get excited about. In fact, I feel like flying away right now because I'm receiving something from God that I don't deserve. It's called grace. Grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me on. Encourage your soul. Let us journey on. Though the night is dark, and I am far from home, thanks be to God, the morning light appears. The storm is passing over. The storm is passing over. The storm is passing over. Hallelujah. The African-American spiritual. This is a time when the football season, of course, is getting ready to start. Some of you are sitting here, young men. You know what um, June and July are like. Football practices. Where you put on a helmet and it feels like a 16-pound bowling ball. And you have on these heavy pads. And the coach putting you through a battery of calisthenics and exercises. And it's 95 degrees on the outside, and on the inside is about 120. And you are hot and burning up. And finally, he says, break. What's the first thing you run to? Water. Try to get to that water fountain because 
The football players in my time used to call it cotton mouth. <laughs> Just hot. And they'd run for that water fountain because it was the only thing that gave them satiation and relief. The psalmist says, as the deer pants, cotton mouth. After the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I appear before God? God wants us to have spiritual cotton mouth. The only thing that will do will be the water of life that protrudes from the fountain of God's existence. Cotton mouth. We're losing our appetite and our thirst for God. Jeremiah, hear him again, anew, in Jeremiah 29 and 13. And you shall seek me, and you shall find me. When? After you have searched for me with your whole hearts. God wants us to be wholehearted in our thirst and in our appetite for God. Siddhartha Gautama is the founder of Buddhism. As a young lad in his village, he wanted to find God, and this became known among the elders. Some of the elders said to him, you need to go up into the mountains and talk with some of the sages who will tell you how to find God. This is the legendary story. He goes up to the mountains, he locates a sage, and one of the sage, Agria, takes him down to a pond, talks to him about finding God, and without a moment's notice, takes the back of his neck and drives his head in that pool of water as if to drown him, holds him down, and Siddhartha Gautama begins to fight and resist as much as he can, but the ironclad grip of the old griot, the, 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 um, the old uh, sage, he cannot fight off until finally his body gets weak. And when he has resigned himself to drowning, it's at that moment when the sage pulls his head out of the water and he's failing and he's kicking and screaming and trying to clear his throat of the water and trying to get air again. And when he gets his first breath, he starts to protest and criticize that sage for doing that to him. And the sage says to him, when you wants God as much as you wanted that next breath, then you will find God. And you shall seek me and find me after you have sought for me with your whole heart. I am not um, on the same page with Paul Tillich, the systematic theologian of Union Theological Seminary and other places, a, a, uh, one who was imported from England, or rather from German, but he says something in the Saturday Evening Post, June 1958, the lost dimension in religion, in which he says, what is missing in religion is that we have, hear his words, failed to be grasped by an infinite concern. We have failed to be grasped by an infinite concern. And what he means by an infinite concern is God. We have lost, I'm talking about the people of God all over the world. One of the great uh, low points in our Christian living is that we have a decreased appetite and thirst for God. 
God, just give me one hour on Sunday. That's all I need, just one hour. I, I won't need you during the week unless there's a crisis and an emergency. Just give me an hour on Sunday. Uh, I, I thank God for um, uh, the governors and the mayors when a crisis comes, whether it's a hurricane, Katrina, or whatever it is, and we have a day of prayer. I think that's great. But whatever happened to sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my father's throne, makes all my wants and wishes known. In fact, sometimes we, we think that we can manipulate God and have a day of prayer. And then after God has rectified the situation, then his business as usual, we forget all about him. No, I need him every day, every hour, every minute, every second. I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. Psalm 42 and 43, one psalm. I think this combined psalm is preparatory for psalm, if you will, uh, throughout, the, throughout the Psalter, preparatory for all of the psalms. In fact, I really think that you can't appreciate Psalm 42 and 43 fully until you can walk through it and then appreciate Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is our favorite song. We like that song because we think that it's uh, always up. I've already shared with you how this psalm has ebbing and flowing ups and downs and all of that, but we like Psalm 23. Psalm 42 and 43 is about a deer panning after the water brook. Psalm 23 is about a uh, sheep that is made to lie down in green pastures and is led beside the still waters and has his soul restored and is led in the paths of righteousness for uh, his namesake. We like that psalm. But I must come to understand that I cannot fully appreciate Psalm 23 until I've walked through Psalm 42 and 43. Because Psalm 23 also has some highs and lows. Verses 1 through 3, I am talking about God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or as the little girl misquoted the psalm, verse 1, and yet had the right theology. She said, the Lord is my shepherd, what more do I want? Now, I know that's not what Psalm 23, verse 1 says, but I declare that's what it means. If the Lord is your shepherd, you lack nothing. What more do I want? He makes me to lie down, not in brown pastures, but green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. I'm talking about him now. He restores my soul. He takes my breath away. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Talking about the shepherd. And then we quickly want to skip verse 4 and run to verse 5. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, I can't get to the banquet table in verse 5 unless I walk through the valley in verse 4 because that's the bridge. I've been talking about God in verses 1 through 3, but in verse 4, I start talking to God. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you, Lord, you're with me. Your rod, Lord, and staff, they comfort me. There comes a time in our Christian pilgrimage when we stop talking about the Lord and start talking to the Lord. Let the crisis get that severe 
And you don't have time to tell the Lord he's omniscient and he's omnipresent and the Lord is uh, 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 one who is ubiquitous. He's everywhere at the same time. He's immutable and all that. God already knows that. But when you're really in a crisis, you stop talking about the Lord and you start talking to the Lord. You are the one who takes and puts me in this valley of the shadow of death and you're with me and I fear no evil because your rod and staff comforts me. Well, I can't appreciate Psalm 23 unless I walk through Psalm 42 and 43. Well, I think the keys, four keys, and I'm done, four keys that help the psalmist emerge with praise. Remember, the psalm starts off with panting. As the deer (laughs) pants after the water brooks, But it closes with praise, Psalm 43, verse 5. I shall again praise him, my Savior and my God, from panting to praising. How does he get to the praise? I think he retrospectively looks back. He's been talking about himself uh, quite a bit, what he remembers. You will see in verse number 4, Psalm 42. He says, I remember you as I pour out my soul. How I used to lead the thrones with loud shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude keeping praise. I remember the way it used to be. Verse number six, my soul is cast down as I remember you in the land of Jordan on Mount Hermon and the hill Mizar. I remember and there has to be some memory in my redemptive uh, mind bank where I remember the times. I know we go through this and that and we're up and we're down and we go through struggles. But remember the time when you used to sing uh, the Lord's song with loud shouts and songs of thanksgiving. Don't wait until the battle is over the shout. That's not what God told Joshua and the children of Israel to do. He told them to march around the walls of Jerusalem one time for six days. That's six times. And on the seventh day, the march around it seven times and before the walls came down shout in other words shout before the walls come down therefore you and I need to praise God before God does anything we need to worship God before God moves we need to give God praise before anything happens shout before the walls come down no anybody can shout when the walls come down when you don't have a bulldozer or crane but you can shout before anything happens because God is working Reflect upon the time when you used to worship and reflect upon the time when God was in your Jerusalem, on your Mount Hermon, and your hill Mizar. God is not territorial in his sovereignty. God is everywhere. You don't have to meet God anywhere. He is everywhere at the same time. So in your strange land, Robert Smith, wherever you are, Robert Smith, remember that what counts in worshiping God is not soil, but spirit. And no matter what soil you're on, every time I feel the spirit move in my, moving in my heart, I will pray. Whatever, whatever kind of soil it is, if it's a high church or low church, if you're standing on the corner, the soil doesn't matter. The spirit does. Well, that's the first thing. Retrospectively, look back and remember the times when you worship God and the times when God was present in your life. He has not vacated you. Truth forever on the scaffold, James Russell Laurie, wrong forever on the throne, but the scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown stands God in the shadows, the shadows, the shadows, the shadows, not the sunlight, but the shadows. 
keeping watch above his own. I think the psalmist has to emerge out of his self-centeredness. He's talking about himself a lot. In fact, uh, 52 times he talks about himself. 21 times he uses the word I. 16 times he uses the word my. And 14 times he uses the word me. Only 21 times does he use the word, if you will, 20 times the word God and one time the word Lord. The only time you see the word Lord, particularly in the New Revised Standard Version, is in Psalm 42, verse number 8. So he talks about himself twice as much, more than twice as much, than he talks about God. And if I'm going to emerge out of this, I've got to stop talking about myself. And I've got to give God metaphors that show that he still is the God of sovereignty. That's what the psalmist does, particularly in Psalm 42, verse 9. God, you are my rock. Psalm 43, verse 2. God, you are my refuge. He says in Psalm 43, verse 4, you are my exceeding joy, God. You are God, my God. In Psalm 42, 5, 42, 11, and 43, 5, he says, I will praise him, my Savior and my God. And I've got to get to the place where I stop talking about me and my And I've got to talk about God. That's what worship is. That's what living the Christian life is. It is centering our thoughts on God. The third thing, this psalmist is blessed because he understands that he's in the face of God. You won't see this in the English. You see it in the Hebrew. Three times this idea of face. Psalm 42 and 5. I shall praise him for the help of his face, his face. 4211, I shall praise him for the help of my face. Psalm 43 and 5, I shall praise him for the help of my face. So in 425, it's his face. But in 4211 and 435, it's my face. And D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that um, very meticulous, particular expositor, interprets this by saying, that the psalmist is in the face of God, 42.5, the help of his face. And as a result of that, 42.11 and 43.5, it uh, ricochets off of God's face to his face. So much so that you have a panim a panim in Hebrew, which means uh, face to face. And whatever is on God's face gets on yours. That's really what happens in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Moses has a summit meeting with God for 40 days, uninterrupted. You know, he didn't answer any email. Uh, he didn't answer any facts. Uh, he was not, he was not uh, beeped out of this fellowship 40 straight days with God. He didn't have a meal 40 straight days. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, that the glow on his face as a result of being in the face of God was so powerful that the people couldn't even look on him. All it takes, uh, our discipline to stay in God's face. And it will affect our face. That's really the benediction of Aaron, you know, in number 6 and 22. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his face, countenance upon you. The Lord be gracious unto you and give you peace. It's his face. And one of these days, heaven will be finalized. When in Revelation 22 and 4, we shall see his face. That's what heaven is all about. It ultimately is not about jasper walls. It ultimately is not about golden streets. It ultimately is not about pearly gates. All of that's wonderful. 
But what makes heaven heaven is that we're in the presence of the Lord and we see him face to face, which is more than what angels can do now because they have to cover their face with two wings and cover their feet with two wings and fly away with two wings. But one day, panim apanim, we shall see his face. But then here's the faithfulness of God. I think this is the real key. Psalm 42, verse 8. He commands his steadfast love by day and by night his song is with me. Let me just pick up on his steadfast love. It's, it's the Hebrew word hesit. The loyal covenant love of God. It's God's faithfulness. It's the Old Testament word for Hebrew, for, for uh, grace. The loyal covenant love of God that is faithful. He sends out his faithfulness by day. God has brought us into covenant relationship. We don't serve a God of contract. We serve a God of covenant, which means this. I don't serve a God who says, look, here's 50%. You do 50%, I'll do 50%. Mm-mm. God says, I am going to guarantee the covenant in myself. In fact, there's really nothing you can do. You know how you spell salvation? Not D-O, but you spell salvation D-O-N-E. It's already done. You do absolutely nothing but respond to what God has done in order to save you. Don't foul up. Grace, grace is not God's blessing plus my efforts. Grace is all of God plus nothing equals grace. And so God says, I'm going to be faithful. Even when you're not faithful, I'm going to be faithful. Even when you don't think of me, I'm going to be faithful. When you don't say your prayers at night, I'm going to wake you up in the morning. It has nothing to do with you. And even when you're not at your best, I'm still going to be faithful. Ah, thanks be to God. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, our Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Well, this psalm opens up with panting. It closes with praising. It opens up somewhat pessimistically. It closes optimistically. Winston Churchill, the great prime minister of England, gave his last commencement address in London in June of 1965. He was weak. He was fragile. He had to be assisted to the podium. And when he stood there, he paused for what seemed to be an interminable amount of time. And then he offered these words, which are words that will have to go down in history as being the only commencement speech that people would remember verbatim. Never give up. Never give up. And he sat down. And everybody remembered that. But a few months later, in October 1965, Churchill died. He had already written out his funeral program, his favorite Anglican hymns, his favorite Anglican scriptures were already written out. Those he wanted to eulogize him, their names were already inserted in the program. 
But when it came time for the benediction, just before it was given, there was a trumpeter up in the dome. My wife and I were just over in St. Paul's Cathedral where Churchill was eulogized and funeralized several decades ago. And the bugler, the trumpeter, played taps. And you know what taps is? Taps signals the end of the day for those who are in the military. The trumpeter played taps. For those assembled in St. Paul's Cathedral, it signaled that this was the end of the journey for Churchill. It was time to go to bed. It was time to end his course. But before the benediction was announced, he had already planned for someone else to stand in the dome and to play reveille. It's time to get up. It's time to get up. It's time to get up in the morning. Taps represented crucifixion. Reveille represented resurrection. Reveille, it's time to get up. And what Churchill is saying to us tonight, this psalmist who starts out panting, pessimistically depressed despondence ends by praising I shall again praise him my savior and my God for some of us who are sitting here tonight you are singing taps it's the end of the day it's the end of the road it's the end of the journey it's the end of hope but I want to tell you that it is not the end. It's time for you and I to sing reveille. It's time to get up. It's time to get up. This really is what happened at the cross of Calvary. Pilate and Caiaphas and the others were playing taps. It was all over for Jesus. In fact, even the disciples decided that they would go back to fishing with Simon Peter. Six joined Peter in this fishing expedition. Saturday did not look any better. But on Sunday morning, Jesus was not having taps played for him. But Revelation says that he was having Revelé, Revelé pray for him. It's time to get up. And Sunday morning, Reveille was prayed. And he rose from the dead with all power in his hand. 
So you don't have to walk around despondent and depressed. It's not time to give up. It's time to get up. Get up from your depression. Get up from your surrender. Get up from your despondency. Get up from your critical view of life. Get up from blaming others for your present circumstance. Get up from what the doctor has said. Get up from what the marriage counselor has said. Get up because it's time to get up. I'm glad tonight that I got up. In fact, he took me up and he picked me up and he turned me all the way around and I'm glad that he's in the business of picking you up. I'm glad tonight that you don't have to play taps, but you can play Reveille. It's time to get up. It's time to give him some joy. Oh yeah, it's time to give him some praise. Oh yeah, some young men like you and like you, God is counting on you as you walk the narrow road just go on and walk for Jesus because it's time to get up it's time to let everybody know I may be young but I serve a God who is still good a God who's still able a God who's still true and I live for him he is our oasis he is that subterranean stream that enables us to remain lush and green in climate and desert situations. How many of you know the Lord is calling you not to play taps, but to play reveille? It's time to get your brother. It's time to get her. I want you to just live on tiptoe anticipation of reveille because God is raising you up to be an example to young men just like you so that young men can understand and young women can understand what they need is not crack, they need Christ. So they can understand what they need is not grass, but grace. What they need is not marijuana, but marriage Jesus. They're looking for people just like you who can stand up and let them know that God is the one that gives me a high that never brings me down again. For I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people unto me. It's time to give get up. Father, Father, thank you. Thank you for turning our panting into praising. Thank you for satisfying our soul. And for anyone who's here tonight, Lord, who's still searching, they can't find fulfillment in materialism, in notoriety and popularity. They can't find it in drugs. They can't find it in promotions. May they come to you and understand that they can only find it in you, in the son who was willing to die upon a cross, shed his blood to wash away all of our sins so that he can lift us out of the pit of a burning hell and lift us on the pinnacle of a God that we will praise throughout ceaseless ages. I commit these persons to you in Jesus' name. It's time to get up. Amen.